Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Uh, help us uh, by your spirit to see what happened in those days, and I pray that you would uh, take that truth and um, apply it, make it personal uh, to us tonight. We love you, and we thank you for the opportunity to gather without fear, uh, to gather without... Um, uh, it, it, uh, it was easy uh, to come here tonight. And so we remember our brothers and sisters around the world who um, today, uh, they risked uh, their lives and their livelihood uh, to worship you. And so, Father, we just say thank you, and we tell you tonight, we love you, and we worship you, and please be with us and teach us. Uh, we just ask you for this, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so some of you, as I wander around um, on Sunday nights, and we just get to chat for it's like 30 seconds. I know you know that. Thank you for being gracious. Um, some of you have the same problem I have. Uh, the past, I can't tell you, a number of months have been so crazy schedule-wise. Now, I tend to get up a little early anyway, and so at, when I get up, I get my cup of coffee, and I go sit down on my computer because that's where my uh, Bible program is. And I set my coffee down, and my computer turns on, and I go straight to the scriptures. No. <laughs> I go straight to email. And in the midst of answering emails that have come in overnight, or from the previous day that I just looked at, but I didn't answer, then I also, because with my email is my calendar. And so then I'm reminded of all the meetings that I have, and oh, I haven't prepped for those meetings. And so I have to, of course, start prepping. I got at least two or three bullet points or three or three questions, whatever. I have to prep. And by that time, my hour is now down to about 15 minutes, and I'm reminded, because the Lord's still small voice has grown louder, <laughs> it starts off with, Bill, Bill, and by the time I'm down to 15 minutes, he's going, hey, hey, we're running out of time. <laughs> so I pull up my Bible program, and I read my uh, material for the day, and then I say my, I got my prayer list, and I pray through them real fast, and then I shut the computer down, and I get on with my day. And I've talked with some of you, and the rest of you are just liars. <laughs> oh, Bill, I spend three hours. No, you don't. Stop it. Stop it. You're in church. You cannot lie to your pastor. So this has been my life for the past probably six eight months, and I'm glad you can connect to that, but I know what's happening inside me is that instead of, being, instead of Jesus being at that real center place of my heart, um, I know I'm the one who's left, <laughs> but he, he's moved a little further to the outskirts of town rather than being right here in the center. You know what I'm talking about? Tonight, this is exactly what's happened to Israel 
and David knows it, and David is going to do something about it. And so tonight, we're going to look at 2 Samuel 5 and 6, which is David realizing something is amiss with the country, and as a leader, he's going to step into that and bring about some changes, and I think you'll see some applications. I know I did. I think you'll see some applications tonight for your life. 2 Samuel, we're still in the book of the monarchy. With the deaths of Saul and Ishbosheth, God brings Saul's dynasty, his house, to an end. Sin and civil war have kept God's presence, power, and blessing in the outskirts of national life. Uh, the ark has been living, <laughs> the, the box has been living in Kiriath Jerim. And it went there, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but it's been living sort of, yeah, in, in the outskirts of the nation and in the outskirts of the nation's heart. So David knows that he's got to unify and strengthen the kingdom. So the first thing he does is he works to bring God's presence back to the center of the nation's heart. That's what chapters 5 and 6 are about. David working to bring God's presence back to the center of his nation's heart. So my title, my big idea for tonight is Returning God to His Rightful Place, the center of his nation's heart. Laurie's included a few more maps in your handouts than I'll have on the screen, but make sure you look at those as we go through these next slides. In chapter 5... Uh, it begins, remember chapter 4, uh, the two uh, scoundrels who had killed Ishbosheth and expected a reward from David um, got their reward, <laughs> not what they expected. Um, David killed them, or had them killed, um, and they bury Ishbosheth's head in Abner's tomb in Hebron. Chapter 5, then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, you will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in all. He had reigned over Judah from Hebron for seven years and six months, and from Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. So there's sort of a little summary of what's going to happen to David. After this anointing, or it's really a confirmation, they didn't they didn't um, recognize this. They affirmed God's choice. They understood God's choice of David, and they affirmed that. David then led his men to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites, the original inhabitants of the land who were living there. The Jebusites taunted David, saying, You'll never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. You know, I suspect that's probably not a good thing to say to David. 
I just think that's not wise. For the Jebusites thought they were safe, but David captured the fortress of Zion, which is now called the city of David. On the day of the attack, David said to his troops, I hate those lame and blind Jebusites. Whoever attacks them should strike by going into the city through the water tunnel. And that's the origin of the saying, the blind and the lame may not enter the house. Something, a proverb you probably say a lot to yourselves these days. <laughs> so David made the fortress his home and he called it the city of David. He extended the city, starting at the supporting terraces and working inward. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. Then King Hiram of Tyre sent messages to David, along with cedar timbers and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built David a palace. And David realized that the Lord had confirmed him as king over Israel and had blessed his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After moving from Hebron to Jerusalem, David married. Yeah, he had a lot of kids. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, they mobilized all their forces to capture him. But David was told they were coming, so he went into the stronghold. The Philistines arrived and spread out across the valley of Rephaim. So David asked the Lord, should I go out and fight the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And the Lord replied to David, yes, go ahead. I will certainly hand them over to you. So David went to Baal Perazim and defeated the Philistines there. The Lord did it, David exclaimed. He burst through my enemies like a raging flood. So he named that place Baal Perazim, which means the Lord who bursts through. The Philistines had abandoned their idols there, so David and his men confiscated them. But after a while, the Philistines returned and again spread out across the valley of Rephaim. And again, David asked the Lord what to do. Do not attack them straight on, the Lord replied. Instead, circle around behind and attack them near the poplar trees. When you hear a sound like marching feet in the tops of the poplar trees, be on the alert. That will be the signal that the Lord is moving ahead of you to strike down the Philistine army. So David did what the Lord commanded, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. How does David go about returning the presence of God to his nation's heart. First thing he does in verses 6 through 16 is he establishes a new capital. The capital had never been Jerusalem. David is living in Hebron. They had uh, built the tabernacle originally at Shiloh. Jerusalem was held by the Jebusites since the time of Joshua and the judges. So it's been hundreds of years the Jebusites have had this city. David decides that's going to be the capital city, and so he's got to go take it. And so he establishes a new capital city. This giant uh, piece of land... This giant piece of land known as the city of David was 12 acres big. That is the size our campus is here in Fort Worth. So just imagine, draw a line around our whole campus. That's as big as this entire city was. This is what David is capturing. <laughs> He's capturing Christ Chapel. 
They mass at the wall and inside the wall. That's why they were confident to say, right, you'll never get in here, David. So what does he do? That other picture in your notes, they go up the water tunnel, unannounced, and like the Trojan horse that <laughs> Cody talked about last week, <laughs> they pop out on the inside and they take over the city. And so David is victorious and he establishes a new capital for Israel. What's the point? God has a new first place in the kingdom. A first place, a best place. That's the first thing David does. He establishes a new capital so God would have a new first place in the kingdom. The next thing he does is he drives out an old enemy. And so he, the Philistines hear about David being anointed king of Israel. Uh, how quickly do they attack? Very quickly. What's their hope? David's just been anointed king. He hasn't had time to put things together. Now's an opportune time to strike. So they all get together, and they're going to come after him. And so David and his men go out into the valley of Rephaim. See Jerusalem. So you're about uh, six-ish miles southwest of Jerusalem to the valley of Rephaim. The Philistines are coming from the west. David and his men are coming from the east. And the Lord gives him victory twice over the same enemy. How many different strategies did the Lord give David for those two battles? Huh. So the Lord didn't use a cookie-cutter strategy to defeat the enemy both times. Right? He could have. Right? He's the Lord. He can do whatever he wants. But he didn't choose to do that. He chose to defeat the same enemy using two different strategies. Hmm. Hold on to that one. So David asks the Lord. The Lord gives him victory twice over the old enemy of the Philistines. The point, no Philistine will be tolerated within these new borders. David establishes a new capital, so God has a new place to live, a throne city. He drives out the old enemy because no Philistine is going to be tolerated within the borders. In chapter 6, then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Baalah of Judah, which is Kiriath-Jerim. To bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart. And brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart as it left the house, carrying the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah 
reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. (laughs) Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is still called today. David was now afraid of the Lord, meaning a newfound fear of the Lord had gripped David. This is a good thing. (laughs) How can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David because he's probably wondering what's going to happen to the city if I take this ark in there. (laughs) Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Then King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had... They were what? Carrying. What were, how were they to transport the ark? Remember they were to have the poles in it? And only certain ones of Aaron's family and the Levites were allowed to carry it on their shoulders. Who was in the wrong with the cart? Whoever thought it up, but David is angry with the Lord for no good reason or for an improper reason. What is the Lord angry at? David, you have not obeyed my word. I told you to carry the ark. You put it on a cart. But Uzzah just touched it to keep it from... David, I told you to carry the ark, not to drag it on a cart. You didn't do things my way, David, and that will always cost you something. David learns. New fear of the Lord. He probably looked back into Leviticus and some previous books and found out, oh, we're supposed to be carrying it. And so when he moves it again, after the men, verse 13, after the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord, good job, David, good job, men. David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, remember her? Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. Probably a lot of reasons for that. Um, One, David has planted her father and his dynasty. Uh, Two, you know, she's 
She was kind of betrothed to him, but taken away and married off to somebody else. And then David said, no, I want her. And they took her by force. You know, so she's in a place right now she might not want to be. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why she would have to be upset. But nonetheless, she has contempt for David because of the way he's going on in his worship and his celebration before the Lord. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. When David returned home to bless his own family, uh, euphemism, uh, David was going home to have conjugal relations with, his, with Michael. He was going to bless her. How's she feeling right about now? She's got contempt for him. Hi, honey, I'm home. <laughs> I'm prepared to bless you. <laughs> tell you what it says. You're like, what? He's going to bless her. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to even look more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. <coughs> so Michael, the daughter of Saul... How do I know what it means to bless her? So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. We're done. David goes, we're done. We're done. I got plenty of wives and don't need you. So she never was blessed by the king again. <laughs> That's why she had no children. Ah! <laughs> I know, they don't teach you this stuff in Sunday school. <laughs> Poor children, it would just curl their hair and they'd be in counseling forever and ever. <laughs> David establishes a new capital so that God has a new first place in the kingdom. He drives out an old enemy, the Philistines, because no Philistine will be tolerated within the borders of this country. David brings back the ark. It's been more than 60 years you say, why did David feel like he needed to bring the ark back? Sixty years this has been gone. Uh, for those of you who like um, more real-time application of that, that is 1959. 1959. It's been gone for 60 years. They haven't missed it. Why? Sin and civil war. They haven't missed the missing ark. 
60 years this has been gone. Okay, so without my um, pointer, you can see the, uh, remember, the ark was at Shiloh, and remember they took it to battle at Ebenezer, which is where they lost it, and the Philistines took it, and so the Philistines took it, they took it down to Ashdod, and what happened at Ashdod? Uh, they started getting tumors. And so then they said, get it out of here. Take it to Gath. They take it to Gath. What happened? More tumors. They say, get that thing out of here. They take it to Ekron. At Ekron, remember the, the uh, leaders, the elders say, you know, here's what you're going to do. You're going you're gonna to put the, uh, a cow who's just had a calf, and there's no way a cow's going to leave a calf. Okay, they stack the deck against this whole thing. But they hitch it up, and what happens? God takes it, and he takes it uh, over to Timnah and Beit Shemesh. Then it makes its way finally to Kiriath-Jerim, where it's been on this journey, but this is where it's been most recently, is over here in Kiriath-Jerim. Now here's Jerusalem, eh, maybe six-ish miles over here. It's just been sitting here. And so David says, let's go get it. So he goes and get it, and it's on that journey that they put it on the cart, touch, all that kind of bad stuff happens. He goes, uh-oh, I think we better look at the Word of God. They find out they're supposed to carry it. They carry it into town. He carries it into town. Michael is unhappy with him. He pokes her right back, and she remains childless for the rest of his life, for the rest of her life. What's the point? The ark of God's presence is once again at the center of his people's hearts and lives. David has established a new capital. He's driven out an old enemy, and he's brought back the ark, which was out of sight for 60 years. I love this story. Let's try to make some application to ourselves. How do we return God to his rightful place? What is his rightful place? It's the center of his child's heart. Now, without my... Gosh, I'm without tools tonight. Without my whiteboard, I would be drawing you. So here's a, here's a picture of Israel over here. And in the middle is Jerusalem. And now over here, I would have drawn you a picture of a person. And right in the center of it is the land of Mansoul. Right? We've talked about this before. So we're going we're gonna to compare these two things. God's rightful place is in the center of his child's heart in the same way it was to be at the center of his nation's heart. This is God's rightful place. The center of my heart, not the outskirts, the center. How do I go about getting him back there? Question, is God where he should be? So that's our first question. Sin and civil war, just like with the Israelites, can do a number on us, too. So can times of disobedience and indifference. 
so can adverse circumstances. So can busyness. During such times, we can grow half-hearted and or double-minded toward God. We can push him, his word, his will, and his presence into the outskirts of our lives. And as Cody covered in the book, in the uh, church, the letter to the church at Ephesus, it can go on long enough that I can lose my first love. Ephesus was an amazing church. It was the megachurch of its day. So in 95 AD, there was a church at Antioch and there was a church at Ephesus. And they were the gigantic churches in the world at that time. Paul taught at Ephesus for three years. John was a pastor or a bishop at Ephesus. I mean, this is a... (laughs) a crazy church doing so many, so many wonderful things and yet what does the Lord tell them? You've done everything right but you still got it wrong. You don't love me like you used to anymore. If your heart were a table like a table at a restaurant What seat would Jesus have at your table? Is he in the seat of honor? Or is he tolerated just enough to get to sit somewhere at the table? Or is he sitting at the adult table in your home at all? Or is he out in the backyard at one of the kiddie tables where he won't be underfoot? If your heart were a table, where is Jesus? Sin and civil war and all these things can do a number on us just like they did with Israel. Sixty years they go without missing his presence. Is God where he should be in your life and in your heart? How do we return him to his rightful place? Question. Are there some Jebusites, in quotes, or Philistines, in quotes, hunkered down in your heart tonight? Those old enemies that have been battled before? Are they still lurking around, hunkered down? You say, I I don't know, maybe. How about some ongoing unrepentant sin? Any of that? How about a lack of security or significance? Is that Philistine running around in your world of man-soul? How about just busyness, as I already talked about? 
materialism, a lack of forgiveness, anger, bitterness, or resentment, discouragement, or complacency, maybe fear. I thought Cody had a great observation this morning, and I'm repeating it here. It's a question I have to ask myself, and so I ask you after first asking myself, have you become stubborn in your sin? You know what it means to be stubborn. Are you stubborn about your sin? Are there some Jebusites or Philistines who cry out to you, you blind and lame Christian, you will never take this over. And they taunt you. They yell at you from over the wall. There's some of those in your life. How do we bring back God's presence? Well, first we have to ask what pushes him to the outskirts. Lots of things. We've already talked about them. The scripture says you can grieve the spirit, Ephesians 4.30, which seems to be more of what we do. Then there's quenching the spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, which seems to be more of what we do not. So it's what we don't do. Not just the sins of commission, but the sins of omission. There are certain things I do I shouldn't have done, and there are certain other things I didn't do which I should have done. So there are sins of commission, and there are sins of omission. I can grieve the Spirit. I can quench the Spirit. Usually that boils down to disobeying, as David found out. Was David, my goodness, was David um, sincere as he's putting the cart Uh, putting the ark on the cart? Is he sincere about how he's trying to do things for God? Yes. Is he doing it with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength? Yes. What did the Lord think of it? Nothing. Because it wasn't according to his word. How do we bring back God's presence? Confession and repentance restore broken fellowship. Please note I said broken fellowship. I did not say broken relationship. I can yell. I never have and never would. I could yell. I'm purely illustrating here. If I was ever angry at Laurie and raised my voice to her, I may have damaged our fellowship. I haven't damaged our relationship. Does that make sense? The Lord has said, I am his forever. I cannot damage the relationship, but I can damage the fellowship, the intimacy in between us. And so confession restores that fellowship in the same way if I raise my voice, if I were to be angry with Laurie, what do I need to do? I need to go apologize. (laughs) And I need to be sincere about it. I ask for her forgiveness. She grants it. 
and we move on. That's repairing a broken fellowship, not a broken relationship. So confession and repentance restore broken fellowship. And John 14, remember these are some of those red words. John 14, I know it's in the New Testament, but you'll indulge me. John 14, 21. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. What did Jesus just connect here? Love in my heart results in obedience through my hands. It starts in my heart. Those who accept my commands and do them, he's the one who loves me. Love prompted obedience. Obedience prompted by love. What brings the Lord back to that more intimate relationship? Confession and repentance and then rekindling that love and the obedience that follows flows out of that love. First, you've got to ask yourself, is there any place, have I allowed any enemies in? Or what enemies are still there that I'm putting up with? I'm tolerating them. Have I grieved the Spirit? Have I quenched the Spirit? Am I disobeying? Have I put the ark on a cart instead of carried it? Is there any place in my life I'm doing that? And then confess and repent. As Cody reminded us this morning, repentance is a changing of your mind. You're going this way, and now you go this way. You change your mind. You're thinking about this, you repent, you go this way. What brings him back? We need to give God first place in our hearts. Remember, Jesus has overthrown those Jebusites and broken their once powerful grip. He's captured and converted their former stronghold of defiance into his royal throne. Your heart is Christ's home. Reaffirm that Jesus has the capital, the throne, the first place in your heart and in your life tonight. Just reaffirm that. Maybe you've hit busy cycle like I have. And you're reminded by this lesson tonight. Mm, I, can re- I need to reaffirm this. I need to reaffirm this. Tonight you may need to reaffirm that God has the first place in your heart. Second, got to fight the enemy. The Philistines had settled in and settled down in their land. David said, no Philistine will be tolerated within the borders of Israel. We need to say, no enemy can be tolerated within our borders. No more Philistines. No more enemies. And we need to come against those enemies in God's power. How did David start? Lord, if I go against them, will you do something about it? How did David didn't say, I'm strong enough. I can take these enemies on by myself. First place he turned, in prayer to the Lord. Lord, 
Is this the enemy I should go against? Yes, it is. Will, will you be with me? Will you empower? Will you do it? Will you? Yes, I will. Here we go. And the strategy he uses the first time is not the same strategy he uses the second time. That's why we have to listen. What do we tend to do? Well, that strategy worked before. I'm going to try it again. Or that strategy worked with that enemy. I'm going to try the same strategy with this enemy. And in all those things, what does it keep us from doing? Going to the Lord and asking him for his, how do you want me to go about this? I can't win this battle, Lord. I don't have the weapons. I don't have the strength. I can't do it. How do I go about attacking this one? God's will isn't a formula. It requires fresh strategies and power are required for every battle. You will never get less dependent on the Lord. You think in the beginning, well, the Lord, he walked with me as a toddler and he wouldn't let go of my hand. And, but now I'm an adult and I can walk a long time without needing the Lord. I think the same thing from time to time. Nothing could be further from the truth. You never get more independent of the Lord. You only get more dependent on him. When you start getting more independent of him is when the trouble happens. <laughs> you need to keep growing in dependence, not independence. <laughs> keep growing in dependence. Talk to him. Follow the scripture's instructions. And as David did when the victory was given to him, he glorified the Lord. Lord, you did this, and it's amazing. You're so cool, whatever your vernacular is. God's will isn't, the, the, fighting these enemies isn't a formula. You've got to go to him and be dependent and he may put a, a different verse in your mind he may put a person who's struggled with the same thing and you share and they begin praying for you and something you they say something you go lord somebody just said this would this be yeah bill go do that that's a great verse go take that talk to god follow scripture's instructions and give him the glory Tonight, decide to acknowledge God's first place in your heart. Give it to him again if necessary. Fight the enemy in the power of the Holy Spirit. Eliminate complacency. Eliminate complacency. Bring back his presence to the center of your heart and life through confession repentance, love prompted obedience to his, excuse me, to his word, and heartfelt worship. Heartfelt worship. I talked to a fella at another campus today, and he was uh, explaining that in some number of months ago he had the opportunity, there were two business deals in front of him, and he felt like he had laid them both before the Lord, and he was bringing them both down the road, and he felt very clearly that he should take one. He should pursue the one and leave the other one alone. And so he did that, and that was over the summer, and he's been faithfully 
pursuing this one, and he just found out this past week that even that one's going to go away. Can you relate to that? He was really discouraged and really angry. And I said, gosh, I'm so sorry. Who are you angry with? I'm angry with God. Hmm. He said, now, I know that's a feeling. He said, I know that's not right. I'm probably really not angry with him. I said, no, you, you might be. And he says, and I know it's going to be a couple of days or a couple of weeks, and I'm going to wind up thanking him because he probably prevented something bad from happening because he's only looking out for my good, and so I just don't see it. I'm just, you know, like this. And I said, so if you know you're going to thank him in a couple of weeks, and he's, he's looking at me like, don't you go there. <laughs> I said, why don't you start thanking him now? And he said, hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. He said, well, that just probably wouldn't be authentic. <laughs> I get what he's saying, and so do you. Sometimes we just need to worship. Cody's been reminding us in the book of the Revelation, Jesus wins. And if Jesus wins, we win. And that chapter has already been written and the book is closed. That end is not in dispute or doubt. Can I worship him for something? Even if my deal goes south or just goes away? Or even if something I wanted or had my heart set on is not what the Lord has for me, can I not thank him and worship him anyway for lots of other things? I think the answer is yes. And so tonight, returning God to his rightful place is about worship. And when he's in the center of your heart, when the ark is there, they needed the ark to worship God. They just got the ark back. <laughs> they can now worship. Praise the Lord, we don't need that ark. It's already done, and one who stands behind the veil is our high priest. Lots to worship him for, because our ark never moved. It never sat on the outskirts for 60 years getting the ark back, putting it back in the center is about worship. And so if your busyness, like in my life, has made it feel as if the Lord is in the outskirts of town rather than right there in the center, then worship. Confess, repent, obey, all of those things. But worship Worship. Remember it says in Hebrews chapter 13, God inhabits the praises of his people. When you praise the Lord, I don't think it's a formula, but I think when you're praising the Lord, worshiping, he's there. And that can happen tonight or tomorrow morning. And if he let 60 years go past, 
I'm pretty sure most of you have not let your busyness get in the way of your walk with Christ for 60 years. If he would forgive 60 years, he will certainly forgive less. Whether it's been six months, six weeks, six days, or six hours, he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and will receive you wonderfully again. Worship him. When he's at the center, worship is your natural, normal thing you want to do. If you don't feel like worshiping, you should be asking yourself, the Lord might be a little further away from the center of man's soul than he needs to be. Because when he's in the center, I want to worship him. You can't not worship him. I hope that makes sense. For next week, you've been very chapter challenged, and so it's an easy one. 2 Samuel 7. Say that 10 times fast. 2 Samuel 7. One chapter for next week. This is on par with Genesis chapter 15. We have not reviewed and revisited the Abrahamic covenant for quite a while. Some of you, I can tell, your, your pens are always out. When are we going to talk about that again? I remember from the book of Genesis. You said land, seed, and blessing. Land. We've already talked about. Second Samuel 7 is an amplification of the seed promise given to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 15, 2 Samuel 7, and Jeremiah 31, 33 are monstrous chapters in the Old Testament because they amplify the land and the seed and the blessing promises given to Abraham. 2 Samuel 7, please read it. Read it twice, one chapter. You can do it. Read it twice. It'll be a great blessing for you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, it is amazing and how you will use geography to tell a great um, story in history, true story in history, and how we can learn from geography uh, for our own hearts. I thank you that the Lord has never left us. Our relationship with him is not broken or severed. Uh, that's due to you, uh, but uh, help us if our fellowship with you is not quite as intimate as we would like it to be. Uh, forgive us for being so easily distracted, uh, for getting so caught up in our busyness and our what seems to be urgent, that we leave out what is most important for our day, and that's hearing from you and talking to you about what we've heard. And so would you remind me and remind all of my brothers and sisters, of the importance of spending time with you and worshiping uh, this coming week. We love you, and we pray that you do that, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.